rotates. 360 degrees. High high, 360 degrees. High high, 306. 306. 360 degrees. High high. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Full Circle, your cultural affairs radio magazine produced by members and graduates of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. Broadcasting from right here at KPFA in Huchin, occupied Ohlone territory, also known to settlers as Berkeley, California. Tonight on Full Circle, we join in on honoring storytelling for social change. That is the theme of the summer fun drive here at KPFA and as part of the first voice apprenticeship program we celebrate our stories as our strengths that's a perfect match on tonight's show I'll share part of my personal story my battle with addiction in a story called the glass pipe we'll also hear excerpts from a speech by Bobby Seal of the Black Panther Party and Carlos Santana It's part of our thank you gift tonight, storytelling for social change. Later, we'll hear a tribute to Larry Itliong and how he was a catalyst for the great grape strike and boycott of 1965. And of course, we'll be asking for your support tonight as part of our summer fun drive. All that tonight on Full Circle. I am your host, Freewill and Franklin, coming to you from downtown Antioch, Bay Miwok territory. Keep it locked right here to KPFA. All right, again, welcome to Full Circle, the weekly show produced by apprentices and graduates of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. My name is Free Will and Franklin, and I am your host tonight. And yes, I am excited to be contributing to the Summer Fun Drive. I'm also glad that anyone who donates during the Summer Fun Drive receives a gift, or should I say gifts. The Storytelling for Social Change audio pack is our thank you gift to all donors at any level during the Summer Fun Drive. Storytelling for Social Change includes speeches from jazz great Herbie Hancock, guitar legend Carlos Santana, co-founder of the Black Panther Party Bobby Seale, Haitian-American writer Edwidge Dandicat and organizer of the 1963 March on Washington, Bayard Rustin. This gift to anyone who donates any amount tonight will come as a digital download to your email. It's that simple. So anytime during the show tonight that you feel moved to donate to this important media outlet, KPFA, and I hope you are, please do so at kpfa.org. You can also call 1-800-439-5732. And that's 1-800-HEY-KPFA. And as I mentioned in the intro to the show tonight, the First Voice Apprenticeship Program teaches us that our stories are our strengths. Sometimes people may try to judge you or maybe look at you differently because different parts of your past, 
part of your story. But I feel it's up to you whether you're going to be summed up by your mistakes or the positive things you have chose to do or are currently doing. Part of my story is that I was addicted to meth. It was ruining my life, and at times it seemed like there was no way out. Like many people addicted to meth, I struggled along with a good friend to live with addiction and to break free from its grip. Check out this timeless story I produced in 2009. This is The Glass Pipe. Tonight, I want to talk about The Glass Pipe. And smoking meth. And how my best friend and I traveled the same road, smoking dope and partying, and not thinking much about our futures, and how the choices we made affected us then, and are still affecting us now. It must have started around the early or mid-90s, I'm not quite sure, but at that time the pipe was new to me and my friend. It was exciting at the time, you know what I mean? It was, it was something different, and it was, I don't know, it was just something new, and, and we were having a good time doing it. It was fun. There's a lot of girls around. There's a lot of things I haven't never seen before, like wasn't used to, just smoking weed and stuff like that, you know what I mean? It was just a whole different type of life, and it was fun at first, real fun. It was much fun at first. We were staying up late all night. We felt invincible, but there was a dark side. Well, I've been going to jail a lot because of it. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a criminal, but uh, just being, just, just using dope, you know what I mean? Making that choice to use dope or have an army or whatever like that has put me in jail a lot. Um, I've lost places to live because of dope. Uh, I've lost girlfriends. I'm fighting relationships all the time, fighting. You can't trust nobody. It makes it all bad. After a while, man, it's just like you need it to just feel normal. Then you're getting high. It wasn't fun like it was at first anymore. It's just it's just kind of like you need it for like a subsistence, you know what I'm saying? At first it was just curious, now now subsistence because you just need it to just like feel normal when you get up in the morning. If you don't, you feel all dizzy and feel weird and just like that and you can't uh, feel like you can't cope. It's all bad, man. It's all bad. Like my friend says, the fun surely did fade. The trips in and out of the county jail were more frequent. The pipe wasn't just something we wanted anymore. It was something we needed. In time, the need was so great, we were just starting to blow off everything for the pipe. It was ruining us. I'd go to sleep at 4 in the morning, just wake up at 5, and wake up at 7.30, so I'd lose a job. That screwed me. I'd put off bills, bills for my water, bills for my rent, get my rent late all the time. Even though I had the money, 20 times in my hand, I never, you know, I was late for on all my bills. All my bills, have, they have to be, like, either shut off or someone has to, uh, you know, I either have to go down and pay them to get it turned back on or something like that. I, I never pay nothing, like, in the mail on time. It's, you know what I'm saying? Always, even if I got the money, I just don't want to, you know, run out of money, spend it all on this bill, and then not have enough for my sack, you know what I'm saying? And, and selling, selling it, I've, I've sold it. I haven't done anything criminal, I, I can say that, because I was raised good, you know what I'm saying? But I haven't done anything, like, you know, like rob people or rip off stuff from people, you know what I'm saying, stuff like that. And I, I do it, I, I work hard for my, for my money, and... And I spend it on dope, but I've always done it like that. But, but still, man, it makes it tough to it makes it tough to keep a job. And then, you know what I'm saying? Because you, you're there, you're late, you're always, you know, in a rush. There's always, there's always a problem. There's always some sort of drama going on. You know what I'm saying? Your boss doesn't want to hear it. It's like you're working so hard, and it's really so easy. You know what I'm saying? You just, like, do three times as much work to get what you, where you need to go. It's like running backwards or something. I don't know. It's, 
being late with bills was a constant for me as well. And the illusion was I was just struggling to get by. But the reality was all my money was going to the pipe. And like my friend says, robbing and stealing wasn't really our thing. But dealing and putting ourselves in places we should never be just to get a fix wasn't past us. Guns and violence were just a step away. Yeah, man, you just want you know, you just want to get a sack or you want to get high you know, or whatever, you know what I'm saying? So sometimes you just go by somebody's house and, you know, you're not knowing where you're going. You're just with somebody who's going, oh, we can go get high over here. And next thing you know, you're in with a bunch of gang members or whatever, you know what I'm saying, or prison gang guys, you know what I'm saying, or prison guys, just bad people, man, that, that maybe aren't the same as you and me, you know, where we worked or whatever, you know what I'm saying, and we were kind of honest, you know what I'm saying, but we just wanted to get high and we were addicts, you know what I'm saying, they were like all about crank and money and, and it's scary, sometimes it was scary, man, you put yourself in other elements and sometimes you have to like, you know, try to act a certain way or be a little different than you really are, you know what I'm saying, just to, you know what I'm saying, to feel comfortable being there, you know what I'm saying, it's, it's not cool, man, I mean, if I had a kid right now, I, I never let one of him ever try it. You know what I using meth together, smoking the pipe, our trails parted. Him moving to Martinez in Washington and me staying in Antioch. And although we were apart, we both continued on the same destructive course, smoking dope, dealing dope, and going to jail. And at the same time, we were also dealing with another side effect of the pipe, the isolation from our families. Thing is, I don't talk to my family. <laughs> when I'm on the pipe, I don't talk to my family at all. I haven't seen my dad, and he's in Washington State. I haven't seen my dad since I came back down to California in 2001. I haven't seen him. I haven't even seen my dad. You know what I'm saying? And, and he's getting older, and I should. I haven't. I, I didn't talk to my mom for my birthday this year or for Christmas last year. I haven't talked to my mom for like almost a year, probably. My mom and dad. I haven't even talked to him because I was clean for a year and a half. And I was talking to him every day. I was calling my mom every day, just calling her about stupid stuff like recipes and stuff like that to make some food or something like that. You know what I mean? Now I don't even talk to my mom because because I'm on that dope and I don't I don't want to associate with my family because it's a big secret. But they all know when they look you you know when you look them in the eye, they can look right at you and tell that you're on the pipe still. You know what I'm saying? So it's, it's no big secret. I just don't talk to them, so the secret's out. You know what I mean? They know what's up. And they pray for me and stuff like that, and they love me. And they want me to do good. And they want me to be off that pipe, you know, more than ever. But uh, I just don't talk to them, so I can't help it, man. I just, Right now, times are tough. Work's hard to get right now, and if I can get a sack right now and, and pawn off a little bit, it feels like I'm doing something, you know what I'm saying, and make a little money here or whatever, or enough to support my habit. Why not? I mean, I'm not, i got 20 years in the union, and I, I don't got a job right now because it's ridiculous, you know what I mean? But uh, I can make excuses all day long. I know I should be on it, and my life would be better probably if I was off it, you know what I'm saying? The loss of years not spent with our closest family members can never be brought back. I, too, feel that pain. Personally, one thing I regret the most is the time I missed with the kid who would later become my stepson because I had myself locked in the bedroom or in the garage smoking dope. Those days can't be brought back. Like tens 
of thousands of other people in the world. The pipe has held us back. It has definitely put the brakes on my life as far as any any type of success success I wanted. You know what I mean? I mean, there's people my age. If I went to my 20th reunion right now, you know what I mean? There's people there that own businesses and and have houses and properties and are doing really well. And and uh, since since I started hitting the pipe. It's put my, it's put my, anything I, I had going as far as big plans for a career or anything like that, way on hold. I mean, I'm ridiculous right now. I mean, I'm 40 years old, man. Uh, I no money in the bank. Don't own nothing. Living in a motorhome in my friend's backyard. Ridiculous. The thing is, the pipe had put the brakes on our lives. We were really stuck at the same place we were 10 years ago, or even back a few steps. But here's where our stories change. Because in 2005, with the help of my family, I was able to beat the pipe. And it definitely wasn't easy. It meant not associating with anyone who used meth. Which meant I suddenly had no friends. And getting up and going to work without my normal motivation was a great struggle. But I made it. But I also ain't seen my best friend in quite some time. Until we met up again so we could tell our stories. I have to say, it did hurt me deeply to see my best friend still in the same situation we were four years ago. I had to ask what it might take him to give up the pipe. I have no idea. I don't know, man. Should have quit it a long time ago, man. Should have quit it when you quit it. We should have quit it before together a long time ago. I thought you quitting it was going to make me quit it. It just made me not talk to you. <laughs> Miss out on all of those good years, you know what I mean? We were really tight, and, uh, and I really don't know what's, what's going to take to make me quit. You know, there's no place to go but up now from where I'm at right now. So I quit before because I had an ankle monitor on, and I quit cold turkey. I couldn't believe I did that, but I did. I don't know, maybe take an ankle monitor again to get me started. And I think I'm I'm on the road to get an ankle monitor here pretty quick, so... When I get when I get off the medical monitor, stay away from it, and uh, it's probably going to be what I have to do. Either that or go to jail with that threat, not do it. And then when I get out, prepare myself for when I get off that, prepare myself for the place where I'm not going to be around it. And I can just keep on trucking on that good foot. You know what I mean? Keep on trucking on the good foot, like my friend says. Staying away from people who do it is key, but it always seems hard to stay away. You have to constantly tell people who come by that you've quit and to not come by anymore. You'll be fighting the battle constantly to rise up. But it is a battle we all can win. My first few days off the pipe, I went to NA meetings, Narcotics Anonymous. There I heard people with similar stories to mine tell me what helped get them through rough times. And that helped me get through some of my rough times. You know, with all my heart, I pray for you, my friends, to make it. And for all of you to make it. Before I left my friend, I got some last words. If anybody's out there listening, man, don't try it. Meth is it's no good, man. It's, it'll suck you in at first, and you'll, you'll find it fun and exciting and stuff like that. But it ain't that exciting. I'll tell you what, having a family and having a place to live and, and your bills paid and stuff like that, and, and that... You know what I mean? Be able to go on a vacation and you want to do what you want to do because you got that money and, and no stress. It's way better than what we've been talking about. I mean, it's, it's, it's not that fun. 
and it's overrated, and it's just all bad. It's bad. It's all bad. Just don't do it. Leave it alone. Especially don't pick up the pipe. Pipe has its own little mystique and aura about it, man. It'll suck you in and makes half the fun just handling the pipe. You know what I'm saying? And blowing a pipe and, and whatever, man. Just stay away from it. It's the devil, man. For real. Don't do it. Leave it alone. Smoke weed. Now that you've heard our stories, and I know they might be dark or bleak, but remember, there is light out there. I beat this thing, and I know you can. And you can. And you can. I'll leave you with these words, which I heard late night, one night when I was out in the garage tweaking, locked in. I heard a man say, even if you're doing what you don't want to be doing right now, keep it in your mind that you want to quit and think about that every time. Also, tell your family, get them involved. You'll have to seek out help because the people you're surrounded by won't tell you to quit. You have to say it yourself, then do it. And to my friend, I miss you so much. I hope to see you again soon so we can hang out like we used to. Until then, here's some voices from some people in recovery telling us what it means to them to be clean. clean means to me is you know it, it it's got me a life back with my family you know it's got people to where they would trust me you know it's just given me a better outlook on life and you know i'm not out to just hurt people anymore you know i'm I, i've got feel you know it's gave me actually feelings back you know just it's given me a better life altogether with all the way around you know even though things happen still and you have bad days it's just things are better recovery rocks i mean it's it's uh it is my worst day clean is much better than my best day using it's changed my life and i am so thankful that i have been relieved of the desire to use you know everything about my life is totally different than it was before all my decision making everything I mean, it meant a lot. It means everything in the world to me, bro. Look, I got my family. I got my little seven-year-old little girl. Anything I ever wanted came to me just by not using and working the steps. Um, it meant to get my life back. You know, I mean, I went from living on the streets to having a house, being married, and lots of blessings, lots of miracles, real friends, an actual get. You know, I mean, I do things that I never thought I would do before. Just little things that seem stupid, you know what I mean, but they're not. Um, I'm getting my kids back, that's a big blessing, so. To be clean, it gave me a purpose in life. No matter what you did or who you are, God loves you. You could be the worst scandalous, dope fiend shooting, murderous thing on this earth and God still loves you. So with that, he gave me purpose. And with that purpose, I stay clean. Uh, it means having my family. I have five girls from 20 to down to um, one. And um, my 13-year-old actually left because me and my husband were doing drugs. And now um, she's ready to come back. And everything is just beautiful. But before, we didn't have our PG&E on. We were getting kicked out of our house. It was miserable. Being clean is just being willing to change your life and do one thing and one, take it one day at a time. You know what I mean? If you really want to change your life, 
stay clean, a lot of things will come for you. For Full Circle, this is Pretty Will and Franklin. Welcome back to Full Circle right here on 94.1 FM KPFA and KPFA.org. I am Free Will and Franklin, and you just heard my story, The Glass Pipe. I made that in 2009, and I'm happy to say that I'm still going strong and have not used meth since I quit back in 2005. And I feel this is a perfect example of storytelling for social change. I got a lot of feedback over the years about this piece, and I was even told by someone that it moved them to join KPFA and the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. Big shout out to Courtney Supple, graduate apprentice. Hey! And to you all, a quick reminder, we are asking for your support tonight for KPFA and the Pacifica Network. Don't forget, KPFA is a listener-sponsored station and has been that way since 1949. In fact, we are the first listener-sponsored station in the country. Let's keep that going. If you are able to help out tonight, please go to kpfa.org and make a donation tonight. Remember, tonight our gift to you for any size donation is the Storytelling for Social Change audio pack. This includes Herbie Hancock, Carlos Santana, Bobby Seale, Haitian-American writer Edwidge Dandycat, and the organizer of the 1963 March on Washington, Bayard Rustin. Make a pledge of any amount and you will receive an email link with these special recordings. No download codes, no jumping through hoops. Just click the link and you can dive right in. And let me give a big shout out to everyone who has already donated all of our regular listeners know we need you to remain relevant and active in this media landscape. We have survived on listener donations throughout the life of KPFA and the Pacifica Network, and we want to continue that into the future. One more time, if you can, go to kpfa.org, kpfa.org, or give us a call, one 800 439 Five seven three two. That's one eight hundred. Hey, KPFA. And speaking of that excellent selection of speeches, I'm gonna go to a clip of one of the speeches that is available to you because I believe that this has much relevance, uh, much relevance to the environment we're living in today. Given the summer of long protest from the George Floyd movement and all the actions that we've seen leading up to that point. Check out this clip of Bobby Seale as he explores the myth that was created of the Black Panthers by Ronald Reagan. The myth of the armed street gang of the Black Panthers. Many people don't know, as it turns out, the Black Panthers were a group of professional and semi-professional and college students who formed this anti-segregation 
broad-spectrum civil rights movement. Check out this clip, and when you hear it, remember the entire speech is available to you for any amount of donation to keep KPFA alive. Don't forget the website, kpfa.org. We'll be right back after you hear this clip of Bobby Seale, co-founder of the Black Panther Party. And there's quite a few young students, younger people. Some of the older people know about the era and the period. Some of the older people have a good idea of what it was about. Some of the other older people have a misconception about what we were about, at least, the Black Panther Party. People think that we were a black power organization. That's been floated through the press by politicians, floated through the press by various writers, etc. And that's all they think. Because people like Ronald Reagan back in the 1960s, who was governor of California here at the time, particularly in the year of 1967, when I led an armed delegation to the California State Legislature to read a statement, to read a statement and a mandate, because we wanted to get the press. We said, where is the best place to read this statement and mandate? Well, let's take ourselves up to California State Legislature. And at the time, they were trying to hammer out a bill in the California State Legislature against particularly and specifically our new organization, which was only six months old at the time, because we were carrying legal weapons in the streets, patrolling police, not only with weapons, but with law books, tape recorders, and a very profound knowledge of the basic everyday law and how you exercise your civil human rights almost on what we call the cutting edge at that time. But when we look back into the mid-1950s, Thurgood Marshall went into the courtroom with the NAACP, with Brown versus Board of Education, which was a pivot and a turning point to begin to try to wipe the written laws of segregation and discrimination, laws of segregation off the books in the United States of America. A little bit following that, Rosa Parks refused to move to the back of the bus because in a state, in a locale where she was, there was a law that stated that black folks had to ride on the black back of the bus, et cetera, and so on. And following that, a little bit after that, Brother Martin Luther King and a few others organized and started a movement off in this country in the mid-1950s. And that major movement, that civil human rights struggling movement that was going on, that involved many other organizations and many other people, white, black, blue, red, green, yellow, and polka dot, was a movement about trying to wipe the laws of segregation off the books in this country, which took another 15 years to even get to a point of maybe, say, 80% of those laws of segregation being wiped off the books by 19, early 70s. I'm saying that it was only half a victory because hypothetically off the top of my head, 50% of the white folks in this country in their heart, minds, and soul remained a bunch of racists. That's why it was 50 cent victory. Now, in the 1960s, along came another group and they were pragmatic in their involvement 
SNCC Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee with Rap Brown and Stokely Carmichael as most prominent, Stokely Carmichael now known as Kwame Jure, myself, Eldridge Cleaver Huey Newton, and more particularly preceding myself, Eldridge Cleaver and Huey Newton, was Malcolm X, particularly after he left the Nation of Islam, after he took his religion with the mosque incorporated and set it to the side, and particularly with Malcolm X creating the organization of Afro-American unity, which was about a secular organization and not a religious organization, to try to involve as many people beyond religious groups, religious notions, and even as he tried to grapple with how to unify black people in the black community, that someday he would have to be able to work with some progressive white folks in this country. This whole movement in the mid-60s with myself and others was about and involved a lot of organizations, including the Welfare Rights with Faith Evans, Fannie Lou Hammer, and many others. It involved a movement of organizing, demanding and organizing broad political participation, more than just voting, not just voting rights. We're talking about being elected to political office that African-American people, Native American people, Hispanic, Chicano people, Mexican-American people, and others were denied this because of the gerrymandering, good old boy, rugged individualist, racist structure that had been set up in the United States of America and going back through this damn history. It was oppressive, exploitive, avaricious, et cetera. We were talking about broad political participation in the political institutions in the United States of America so that we could make some direct changes, not only in terms of basic civil rights, but politically, socially, and especially ultimately future futuristically, hopefully economically. It was a time when we only had approximately 400 duly black, duly elected black politicians in the United States, throughout the United States, from the federal level all the way down to the local level in the mid-1960s. By the end of the 1970s, you're talking 7,000 duly elected black politicians in the United States of America, numerous other Native Americans, I mean, Chicano, Mexican-Americans and other minority group peoples, etc. And by the end of the 1980s, we're talking 10,000. But that was only half a victory, too. Now, the future struggle now, brothers and sisters, is not about, I hear young brothers in the black community, we're going to start us another Black Panther Party. And they're oppressed, and I can understand their disenfranchised feelings, and I can understand them looking around and seeing the occupying army, the police looking like an occupier. I can understand all that. But the Black Panther Party was not a gang. The Black Panther Party grew out of a young black intelligentsia on college campuses. Welcome back to Full Circle, right here on 94.1 FM KPFA and kpfa.org worldwide. That was the co-founder of the Black Panther Party, Bobby Seale, speaking at a 1995 event as he reflects on the Black Panther Party. Remember, that was only seven minutes of a 35-minute speech. That speech also along with the words from Carlos Santana, Herbie Hancock, Edwidge Dandycat, and the organizer of the March on Washington, Bayard Rustin, are yours for a donation of any size tonight to KPFA. If you are moved to help support KPFA and the Pacifica Network tonight, remember, you can give us a click right now or anytime 
to kpfa.org. And the Storytelling for Social Change audio pack will be yours. And let me just say I'm very excited now that anybody that donates any amount can get a thank you gift. We have struggled for many years up to this point until these last few fundraisers to provide everyone that donates with a gift. So again, if you can, go to kpfa.org or call us at 1-800-439-5732. If you can, make that donation tonight to help keep KPFA going strong into the future. Let me give another quick shout out to all our callers tonight and all those that have donated over the years to make this night even possible for me. I came into KPFA in 2005, and if it wasn't for all the people keeping the station and the network alive until then, I wouldn't even be here today. So again, I thank you all tonight and the generations of people that donated before. Right now, I want to move on to our next story. Yes, this next story, again, coming to you from the KPFA First Voice Apprenticeship Program. And I said it already, but I'll say it again, that we here at KPFA and especially the First Voice Apprenticeship Program know that our stories are our strength. Sharing these stories is important. The stories can enlighten. The stories can educate. The stories can make us stronger. So what you are about to hear was recorded on location in Delano, California in 2015 at the 50th anniversary of the Great Grape Strike and Boycott. And most people who even know about that and could think about the Great Grape Strike and Boycott think immediately of Cesar Chavez and the UFW. But often missing from the conversation is the name Larry Itliong and the organization AWOC. Listen closely to this next feature story and you can gain some insight into how a collaboration between the Filipino farm workers and the Mexican farm workers made history in the United States. Check it out. On September 26, 2015, myself, Frank Sterling, Full Circle and La Onda crew, representing Pacifica Radio, headed south to Deleno, California, to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the 1965 Grape Strikes and Boycott. It was held on the United Farm Workers, the UFW's, historic 40-acre site. I went because many people in my family have worked in the grape fields of Deleno, so I attended as a Chicana, connecting with my cultural history, reconnecting with my roots, and I went to celebrate the heroes who risked their livelihoods in the fight for basic rights in the fields, like access to drinking water, access to bathrooms, and the fight for increased wages. I went also as a reporter to tell their stories, but instead I have discovered something more. There is a story of the highest caliber that has to be told. It is that of the Filipino workers and Larry Itliong. I have known this story, but only to a certain extent. Earlier in the week, in preparation for the journey from Berkeley to Deleno, I contacted the UFW and was able to record the stories of two women, both original strikers. Both women attributed the start of the grape strikes to the Filipino workers. 
Esther Urandai, in particular, was part of the 1965 strike, and she would later run the UFW membership department and was also in charge of accounting for the Robert F. Kennedy Medical Plan. When I began my interview with her, she started with a history about how her own family joined the strike. We were working out in the fields at the time at DM Steel and Sons, and during working hours, we heard conversation from other workers that the Filipino workers, the organization AWOC, had walked out on strike. So we decided to walk out and strike on support. Everyone whose stories I recorded, basically everywhere I turned, including found in the music by Teatro Campesino, there is a recurring background story. But it seems that the history of the heroism and activism of the Filipino workers and Larry Itliong should really be more at the forefront because they were the reason that the grape strikes started to begin with. The day of the 50th anniversary festivities, Filipino strikers were honored Original striker John Armington takes the stage to talk about his father, Bob Armington. John delivers a speech to us from his experience because as a child, he was present during the farm laborer meetings. Here we listen as he talks about the vote that took place on September 7th, the day the vote to go on strike took place. It's also the day before the strikes of September 8th began. Here's an excerpt of John Armington's speech. The meeting was to start at three o'clock by noon, the Filipino hall was filled out the doors with workers and the foremen. And that meeting went for hours, crying, worrying, wondering, hoping to change something. And finally, after many, many, many hours, Larry asked if there could be a uh, vote. And that day, they said, who agrees? The whole room raised its hand. The Manongs raised their hands. And the next day, at 3 o'clock in the morning, we met at the hall and the strike began. The strike would not have started if it weren't for Larry Gitlion. AWOC came as an organization because there had been so many strikes Filipinos had been involved in in Seattle, Anchorage, Stockton, over many times, many years. So they struggled many, many times and often lost. And they wondered, would this win? Within a week to 10 days, the discussions were had. Caesar agreed earlier than he wanted. But the strike continued with a joint cooperation between the AWOC Filipinos and the farm workers under Cesar Chavez. In his speech, John Armington not only tells us that his father, Bob Armington, made the formal motion to strike during the historic strike vote meeting on September 7th, but he also credits Larry Itliong. So, so far in the week, I had been hearing about Larry Itliong, but I wanted to hear his voice myself. 
Here is an excerpt from a video titled, The Filipino Americans. Larry stands in front of a video camera in 1974, and this is nine years after the first grape strikes and boycott had provided workers with contracts, cold running water, and access to bathrooms. Basic civil rights. He reflects back on the early days of the Filipino farm laborer experience, which really relates to the farm laborer experience of all ethnicities and cultures across this nation. Uh, we were brought here primarily to be exploited uh, on cheap labor to where the employers could make a lot of money. Now, for the many years that we have been here, uh, Filipinos have tried to organize themselves uh, to the extent to try to bring about a better working condition and also to increase their wages, which are the lowest in the country. Uh, in this struggle, it was not easy for the Filipinos to develop their organization because the forces of the employers are against them. The city, the state, uh, legislators are all against uh, these people because of the fact that we are minorities uh, with such different color. I sense a fearless wisdom and toughness in the matter-of-fact way that Larry Itliong was speaking in 1974. It's crucial to note that prior to the grape strikes of 1965, Larry had already been a labor organizer for decades with various organizations. Larry's actions and words make him a man ahead of his time. In the Leno 2015, the day of the 50th anniversary celebration, Amidst the crowd, which included Bobby Kennedy Jr., Dolores Huerta, and Chris Christofferson, I saw a man who appeared very easygoing, but somehow commanded attention. The front of his t-shirt portrayed the likeness and name Larry Itliong. It was Larry's son, Johnny. Many people were interviewing him, and I had the chance to interview him as well, since he wanted to reveal key facts. He and I spoke off to the side, beneath a tree, as the ceremonies continued on stage. Well, let me be clear why I'm here. I'm here to help correct the narrative that has been put out for many years about the UFW. My father asked Chavez to join the strike. There's a few things that need to be cleared up about the whole history of the union. People do not realize that the NFWA was an association that was not a union, and that AWOC, Agricultural Workers Organization Committee, which my father was the strike director for West Coast, and one month prior started a strike in Coachella. So the strike actually started in Coachella one month before September 7th when they took the vote and the 8th when they walked out of the fields. And this is the history that's not being told by the UFW. So now, through at least two different people, I have been informed that not only was Larry Itliong a key player but he really was the catalyst for the historic strike and that there should be more UFW founders in addition to Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta. In fact, Johnny Leong mentioned others as well. Let me name off the names. Ben Gaines, Philip Veracruz, Pete Velasco, Andy Umatan, and even El Rojas. And the other, and the other one was Gilbert Padilla and they should be given the credit that is due them. There is something to be said about how some people identify with their own cultural heroes the most, but if there's more to be told, more heroes to share in the action, should we not all embrace them? 
In order to maintain the momentum of the 1965 activism, we have to honor the Filipino workers and Larry Leong. Whenever the grape strike is remembered, we can all keep our heroes, but never forget those who shared in their heroism. As a Chicana, one of my heroes is Dolores Huerta. Here is her closing statement from the podium at the 50th anniversary celebration. One more thing, we gotta make sure we get involved in voting. This is the legacy of the union. We got people registered to vote, and we make them get out to vote so that we can get good people to represent them, okay? Que viva la Unión de Campesinos! And then this is Larry Leong speaking in 1974. Eventually, we figured that uh, in order for us really to develop the kind of vehicle that uh, we need to use to help ourselves, we have to get involved in the political structure of this country so that we can then have an input as to the kind of legislation that needs to be passed where protection such as our right to organize is going to be invited. And also we as uh, Filipinos in this country must have that kind of position. Clearly, Larry Leong is at the core of the legacy and heroes of the UFW. And this is the story that needs to be told along with that of Dolores Huerta and Cesar Chavez, regardless of her culture. Larry Leong is a hero to all farm laborers and activists. Before Larry Leong's son, Johnny, and I parted ways in Deleno, he wanted to share additional reasoning for why he was there. I'm here, I'm here for my father, I'm here for my family, and I'm here, here for all of us, because to me, this is such a great story that has been tainted by a, a story and not historical fact. And how more powerful could it be to have the true history come out and share, share in the limelight, you know, that my father should have gotten, but he didn't care about. There is a lot of effort to not only remember Larry Itliong, but to have him remembered and portrayed accurately by the UFW and really by all of us whenever we remember and speak about the 1965 Great Grape Strikes and Boycott. So on this recent journey to Deleno, I discovered I had to write about a rarely told story from a Chicana's perspective. Often our cultural roots provide us our heroes, but so too our heroes can unite us with other cultures and then collectively, these heroes can share the limelight and should all be honored for forging ahead. For Pacifica Radio and Apex Express, I'm Sarah Blanco. This piece was a collaboration with Free Will and Franklin. Special thanks to Johnny Itliong, John Armington, and Esther Urandai. And thanks to Apex Express for their cross-cultural collaboration. All right, you are listening to Full Circle right here on 94.1 FM KPFA and kpfa.org worldwide. That was the voice of graduate apprentice Sarah Blanco. And as you heard, that was our cross-cultural collaboration with one of our 7 o'clock sister shows, Apex Express, where this story originally aired. 
This type of reporting and storytelling is coming to you straight from KPFA and our producers. If you support on-the-ground reporting and information, please consider heading over to kpfa.org and clicking on that Donate tab tonight. We are listener-sponsored and survive on those donations. Again, I want to thank everybody that has taken the time and the effort and the money out of their wallet to support KPFA. And I'll thank you in advance because I want to get on to our last piece tonight. And I wanted to share another short clip from the Storytelling for Social Change audio pack. And this is Carlos Santana. Here, Carlos shares some of his inspirations to pen his memoir, The Universal Tone. Check it out. Buenas tardes. Good evening. Bonsoir. And uh, on behalf of the booksmith, uh, I'd like to welcome you to The Universal Tone, bringing my story to light, Carlos Santana. Uh, my name is Ben Fontorres. I have had the pleasure of interviewing Carlos through the years, starting in 1972, for various occasions, but never in front of a wonderful, supportive audience. So, yes. So let's do it, uh, ladies and gentlemen, guitarist, composer, band leader, rock and roll hall of famer, Grammy grabber, <laughs> and now author, Carlos Santana. The first official question is, uh, Senor Autor, uh, why did you decide to tackle such uh, an enormous project as a memoir? Well, thank you for asking that. I wanted this book to be a collection of beautiful stories, but mainly it's an invitation to the personal reader to claim their own light. The word indoctrination is another word for mental slavery. Guilt, shame, judgment, condemnment, fear, and the concept that you're a wretched sinner. That's mental slavery to me. Yeah. Emancipate yourself from mental slavery. We are beauty, elegance, excellence, grace, dignity. We are worthy of God's grace. God only sees love. God did not create the word sin nor sacrifice. That was created by a twisted mind and a crooked mind to imprison people like a pimp. And a lot of your thoughts, you, you, this is a really good read, as they say, in oh, the book business. And so I want to ask you about the writing process, uh, because you give full credit to two other folks, uh, Ashley Kahn and Hal Miller. Hal Miller, an old, a longtime dear friend of yours. What was the process? Because the book uh, is in your voice. That's one of the great accomplishments of the book. It's conversational, and yet it's intimate, and yet you did it with two collaborators. So how did that work? By trusting, you know, we, we both wanted, both Ashley Kahn and Hal Miller and myself, and of course my sister Maria, mm. all of us wanted to take the high road, look at the aerial view, and see the big picture. You know, we wanted to make this book about elevate, transform, and illumine. We don't want to tell people what to do, who to be, or how to do it. May the heavens open up and the angels bless each and every one with the deep awareness 
of your own light. And that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to put together all the stories, uh, wonderful stories that I learned from my dad, uh, Jose Santana, from Bill Graham, Clive Davis, B.B. King, Tito Puente, Miles Davis, John Lee Hooker. You know, I mention these names not because I drop names. It's because I am them. I see myself as part of everything that I learned from them. Now my main teachers is Dolores Huerta and Harry Balafonte. I've never thought of you as dropping names. I think you've always lifted names higher and into people's consciousness. And I wonder how you were able to, to call on your memory for details, having done uh, a memoir myself. Man, that is the hardest thing to do, to go back through the flashbacks and beyond, to remember the details of growing up, for example, and how your parents were, how the house was, what the family was like, what it was like in Otlan, and then Tijuana, and then finally San Francisco. How did you do that? How did you dig back? I learned from my mother. She has an incredible mind that had a supreme gift for detail. I chose in this book to remember only the good stuff. Mm. All the bad stuff, I deleted it, and it's not longer part of my existence. Uh, I have celestial and selective memory. Mm. <laughs> the reason I ask that, too, is because you, re you begin by recalling in detail a parade that you were not around to attend because you were still being born. Uh, Josefina uh, was at the parade. But so did your mom then tell you, and you would press her for details and write them down? Did you ever keep a log, a diary? Yes, right here. Ah. Uh -huh. I mean, not many books start with a parade. On a, on, no. a, on a small little town where my mother heard this barulla, which means crazy noise. She asked, yes, okay, yes, what is that? My mother's father, uh, Don Refugio, he said, is that Diablo, el farol? And so my mother opened the curtains, and the first thing she sees is a parade with prostitutes <laughs> and my father holding his violin bow with a bazir in underpants. <laughs> it's a flag. And the priest wants to throw holy water at them. And the mayor loves it. The mayor of the town loved my dad, you know. So, and I was like, wow, my dad is something else. <laughs> what was his music? He played violin. He played violin, but he mainly played all the music that I heard right now. Agustin ah, Lara. Yes. Aquellos Ojos Verdes, Farolito, everything that I learned to play in the violin, you know. Uh, at that time, Agustin Lara was what you call the Cole Porter of Mexico at that time, mm. a supreme writer. Mm -hmm. One of the most recorded songs ever is Besame Mucho, ever. Sure. And people don't know that Caesar's Salad started in a hotel in Tijuana called Caesar's, a Caesar Hotel. People don't know that Margarita or, you know, La Bamba has been recorded even by the Tabernacle Choir, you know. People eat more tortillas or burritos or whatever than bread nowadays. We are here and you can't take it back. <laughs> or as we say, orale. <laughs>
All right, welcome back to Full Circle right here on 94.1 KPFA and kpfa.org worldwide. That was a short seven-minute clip from the nearly one-hour interview with Carlos Santana discussing his book, a memoir of his life and career titled The Universal Tone. The entire interview is yours tonight for any size donation you can make to KPFA and Pacifica. Just head over to kpfa.org and hit that donation tab tonight. The entire collection, the Storytelling for Social Change audio pack, will be yours. I really appreciate all the people logging on tonight. If you are able to take a moment, please join them at kpfa.org because we just have a couple minutes left and I have to get out of here. But again, I want to thank you all from the bottom of my heart. You know, KPFA helped save my life and keep me going into the future. And I want it to be here for others um, that aren't even born yet. One more time for you folks in the back. Go to kpfa.org and click on that donate tab. Keep us on the air in these important times. I appreciate you. And that brings us to the end of tonight's show. Remember to check out our website, kpfaapprentice.org, just after the show for links to past shows and more information on the topics we discuss here on Full Circle. And let me give a big shout out to the Full Circle crew. Our executive producer is Miss M. Joy Moore is our production consultant. And again, me, Free Will and Franklin. I am the technical director for this show, Full Circle. And I have also been your host for tonight. Thanks for listening, everyone. Remember to please, while you're out there, protect your health and your humanity. And stay tuned to KPFA because up next is... Londa Bajita. Good night, everyone.